Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And today we're going to be speaking with David Glantz first up from the Refugee Action Collective. We were meant to speak with David last week and we ended up doing an unexpected tribute to the unexpected death of Archie Roach and we um, we dedicated that show to him. And today we'll be speaking with David in regards to refugees and asylum seekers. Is Labor leaving them behind? And we're going to speak to him about some of their policies and any other updates that are happening. Then, later on in the show, we're going to be speaking with Andrea from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, and I'll be reading her bio later on. We'll be speaking with her about the Ombudsman's report on investigations into the use of force at the Metropolitan Remand Centre and the Melbourne Assessment Prisons. Um, Andrea is Head of Policy, Communications and Strategy at VALS. But now we'll be speaking with David. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. Time show, and we are now going to be speaking with the long-awaited David from the Refugee Action Collective. Hello, David. Oh, hello, Marissa. Yes, I've been waiting by the phone for just over one week now. I'm amazed the battery hasn't gone flat. <laughs> it's so lovely to have you back, David. This That's you, okay. you seem to be... um, lovely to be here, and look, I uh, have no problem whatsoever being bumped from the show uh, for such an important um, commemoration as you had last week for. Uh, yeah. It was a privilege not to be on the show last week. That's lovely. It's lovely for you to say. It was an incredibly sad occasion, actually. Now, David, if you wouldn't mind just talking about refugees and asylum seekers, I know we've got a new government in now, Anthony Albanese government. 
there have been a few positives, but I'm wondering if you could just um, tell us what's been going on with the policies. Yeah, I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that the Albanese government is very good at making a small number of high-profile positive announcements and then covering up the very bad business as usual that's going on. So many people will know that uh, in the last few days, the Nagasalingam family, that's the Tamil family who made their home in Biloela and then were snatched from the house in the early hours of the morning and spent most of the last four years in detention, have finally been given permanent visas. And thousands of thousands of people up and down the country celebrated because it was the activity of thousands of people protesting, plus the lawyers, who helped keep that family in Australia. There are many Tamil families who were being deported. This one wasn't deported because of the level of mobilisation. But the moment we stop and reflect, we've realised that for one family, there's hope and there's a future. But actually, there are thousands and thousands of families in Australia and individuals um, who at the moment have no hope because they either have no visa at all or they are on a bridging visa that has to be renewed very often every six months or on a temporary visa that has to be renewed every one year or, or three years. So we're looking at tens of thousands of people who are living in limbo. Some of them can work, but they can't study. Some of them can uh, claim Centrelink and Medicare, but they can't work. And all of them are deprived of the confidence that they can live in this country in safety, security, and contribute to our society. So one big plus for the Nagasalingam family, home to below with safety and security, but tens of thousands of minuses hanging over the heads of people who are not in that situation. And that's something the Refugee Action Collective is campaigning to make sure that people don't forget and to put pressure on the Labor government to say if it's good enough for that lovely family and those two lovely little girls and their parents, it's yes. good enough for everybody else. So what's the problem here? I mean, the the, the Albanese government seems to be dragging its feet. Well, I think that on the plus side, Labor went into the election promising permanent visas for people who are yes. currently on what's known as temporary protection visas, or and there's another category, safe haven enterprise visas. Now, that's about 19,000 people, and they've been promised permanent visas. And that's great, except it hasn't happened yet. And every week that goes past, you think, what is holding up the government? This oh. is a very simple process. Uh, they don't need to pass new laws. The immigration minister can pretty much single-handedly change the visa status of those people, or at least open up a process where they apply and go through go through the hoops, but knowing that the, they will end up with, with permanent visas. So it, it's been now, what, the best part of 10 weeks, and we're still waiting for the government to even indicate how they're going to go, go around that process. But what is even more worrying are the people on bridging visas maybe 10,000, 20,000 people on bridging visas, which are very short-term, and as I say, give people very um, only a, a taste of some of the rights that the rest of us enjoy if we 
our citizens of, of, uh, of, of Australia. And for them, the government has promised precisely zero. And I think they are scared of being seen as being soft on, on refugees. There's still that, that hangover from over 20 years ago of the idea of the queue jumper and the illegal. And Labor has sort of tried to push things a little bit in the direction of, of decency, but they're not going all the way unless we, as a movement, as people, give them a bloody big shove. So there's all sorts of people who they're not offering visas to, including those who cannot go to New Zealand under the New Zealand deal, cannot go to America, cannot go to Canada, and in many cases are still effectively trapped in Papua New Guinea or Nauru. There are hundreds of people in that situation. So we're out campaigning for the rights of all of these people to have permanent safe um, haven in, in Australia. Is it more difficult to advocate for refugees and asylum seekers with this government as, a, as um, compared to the coalition? Well, it, it, it shouldn't be. I mean, under the coalition, you look at Morrison, you look at Dutton, you look at Alex Hawke, really their contempt for all ordinary people, for all working class people, is just really obvious. It's, it's on their faces. They think all of us are scum. We're all trash. And, of course, refugees are the trashiest of the trash. They really hated refugees. They didn't want to give anybody visas if they could help it. It's different with Labour. Andrew Giles, who's the Immigration Minister, uh, acted on behalf of refugees during the Tampa crisis back in 2001. He's somebody who's spoken out for refugees and at refugee forums and refugee rallies. But he's a different kind of person altogether to the, the Morrisons and, and the Duttons. But he's still got his hands tied by party policy. And party policy is don't make it easy for the Murdoch media, media to have a go at us, um, saying that we're, we're soft on borders and, and soft on refugees. So we've got a guy who's basically a nice guy trapped in a situation where he can't do possibly what he wants to do because the party is operating on the basis of, um, in, a, in their terms, safety first. And the refuge, they think the refugees don't carry a lot of weight and they can, it, it's not worth uh, giving them protection because uh, they won't get many thanks and they'll get lots of criticism. I think that's wrong. I think there is a majority of people around the country who think that refugees should be out of detention in the community with the right to permanent protection and, and safety. So I think the government is wrong. Um, so they've got a, 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 a smileier face, but they are still supporting Operation Sovereign Border, which at the end of the day is about slamming the door shut in the face of desperate people. Absolutely, absolutely. And I believe that... Um I've got here that there's a media release here that was put out by the Refugee Action Collective, Vic, that welcomes the spirit of the ending of indefinite and arbitrary immigration detention bill. Can you talk about that? Was that introduced into Parliament, um, was it? Uh, yep, just last week. Now, ah. that bill um, was proposed by Andrew Wilkie. Andrew Wilkie is a very long-standing independent federal MP, uh, effectively 
for the area Hobart and the area around Hobart. And he's been an independent MP now for oh, 20 odd years, I believe. Um, he floated this bill last year, and there was uh, an investigation, and Refugee Action Collective then put in quite a detailed submission saying Andrew Wilson is right, that mandatory detention is damaging. It takes innocent people who are fleeing from danger and puts them to another round of psychological torture for no good, for no good reason. Uh, so we welcomed Andrew Wilkie raising the idea that uh, detention should be, uh, should be rolled back. But we think he's given a little bit too much ground to the establishment by allowing in his bill, which he reintroduced last week. It probably won't get passed because he's an independent. But he's flying the flag for some principles of decency and humanity. The, the weakness is, he says in his bill, yes, for all sorts of reasons, people can be detained for three months, and then that detention could be extended for up to a year. Well, our view is that detention, mandatory detention should not happen full stop, that people who have arrived here, whether it's by boat or by plane, running away from torture and the threat of death and persecution, um, their refugee claim can be assessed while they live in the community. And that's the way it used to be until 1992. Until 1992, uh, if someone arrived on Australia's borders and said, I'm seeking asylum, they were allowed to live in the community and then they went through a process of proving that they were a refugee. And if they proved they were a refugee, then they stayed in the country. And we think we can go back, back to the future back to the situation before 1992 and treat asylum seekers for what they are, fellow human beings in many cases, because most asylum seekers, especially those who come by boat, are found to be genuine ref refugees. They're running from all sorts of danger. Um, and the least we can do is allow them to live freely in the community while their paperwork is processed. And Andrew Wilkie says, Detention should be a last resort. It should be short. It should be humane, etc., etc. All the sentiments are very positive, cutting against the inhumanity of the last 20 years in particular. Um, but we think he, he just let, let the detention um, uh, problem in through the back door. So while we're, we, we applaud his sentiments, we would ask him to amend the, the bill to be a little bit more principled. I think so, because really there shouldn't be any borders and no one is illegal. Absolutely. We're, we're all human beings. I mean, my great-grandparents fled from uh, racism and oppression, and uh, I don't think they had to apply for refugee status. They just moved to somewhere that was safe. And, you know, I'm here today because my great-grandparents weren't wiped out in... Uh, a racist pogrom. So uh, I, I think everybody who's at risk has the right the right to move to safety. Yeah, I'm hoping that we can we can actually get rid of offshore processing. Absolutely. I mean, there are still several hundred, at least two hundred people, who have been held by Australia now for more than nine years. Some in Papua New Guinea, some on some on Nauru. Uh, these are people who have just been effectively abandoned by Australia 
in somewhere they don't want to be, somewhere where they're not particularly welcome, both yes. through the local population and where they can't build their lives. But there's onshore detention as well, just up the road in Broad Meadows at the Mitre Detention, detention Centre. There are refugees who are being held still in detention. And some of them, I won't name names, but I mean, there are people, for instance, who have lost their right to stay in Australia because, quote unquote, bits of Afghanistan are safe for them to return to, and therefore they're not real refugees. People um. might are being held under those circumstances. And then, of course, uh, there are refugees who are held as so-called 501s. 501s are people who um, are being deported because of they failed a character test, sometimes because they've got a, a jail sentence against their name. But sometimes not. I know one guy who's up at Mitre. Um, he worked in the community on a bridging visa. He was a taxi driver. He was arrested for an alleged offence. His visa was cancelled, uh, I think, in 2018. He, went, he was in detention for three years, went to court in 2021. The charges were dismissed. That means he's an innocent man, but his visa wasn't reinstated. And he's been in Mitre or Christmas Island and now back in Mitre for another year, year and a half, desperately pleading for his visa to be returned to him. So we've got all sorts of bureaucratic cruelty going on in the name of the Australian government and the Australian taxpayer. And I think there's a classic person. He's been in this country for for um, the best part of 10 years. He's contributed, he's paid tax, he's got friends here, he's got community. He should be a permanent member of our of, mm. of, of, Melbourne, of Melbourne life. So on with our next rally coming up, and I really encourage everybody listening who can to come and attend, is on Wednesday the 24th of August, and we're going to be gathering from 4.30 in the afternoon outside the Immigration Department, and that's in what a building known as Castleton Place. It's on the corner of Lonsdale Street and Spring Street, and we're going to be protesting uh, with the support of many refugees and migrants migrant workers for permanent visas for all. And we'll have some speakers, but we'll also have a, an open platform. So any refugee, any asylum seeker, anyone who's been through this process is welcome to come along and have their say on Wednesday the 24th from 4.30 onwards outside the Immigration Department in the city. And after everybody's had their say, we're going to march down through the city to take the message to, to people in the CPD. That's wonderful, David. Look, thanks so much for coming onto the program, and I'm really hoping that the the Labor government can do more for refugees and asylum seekers. Any final comments before we finish? Thank you for, for having me on. I think the main message I want to get out to people is let's celebrate our victories, like the Home to Below family, but remember there are thousands of people who haven't won yet and we need to keep campaigning, and we need to keep on the streets. You know, that's very true. And, of course, um, there, there are meetings every Monday, aren't there? Yes, Refugee Action Collective meets every Monday at the Kathleen Time Library in Carlton. It's very near the Melbourne University tram stop, and we're there at 6.30 on Monday night, and our meetings are open to everyone. And if you go to our Facebook page, you can find the Zoom details 
if uh, for whatever reason you prefer to join us online. Wonderful. Thanks so much, David. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Take care Take of care. yourself. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The Forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narm. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narm. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. And it's approximately 4.28 and you're with the Doing Time Show 3CR Community Radio and we're going to be speaking presently presently with Andrea from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And I will have her introduce herself, but I wanted to just talk about the fact that we'll be speaking to her, as I said at the beginning in the intro, on the Ombudsman Report on Investigations into the Use of Force at the Metropolitan Remand Centre and the Melbourne Assessment Prison. Andrea is Head of Policy, Communications and Strategy at VELS. Andrea has previously worked as a criminal defence lawyer and the coordinator of the Community Legal Education Team at the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency. She has a Master of Law and completed her Churchill Fellowship on culturally appropriate implementation of the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. She is undertaking her PhD on the torture and ill treatment of Aboriginal people in places of detention. Hello, Andrea. Welcome to the program. Hello from Wurundjeri country and thank you for having me on the show. It's lovely to have you. Andrea, would you just be able to, to, to give um, 3CR, the Doing Time show, your full name? Sure. My name's Andrea Luck. Beautiful. Okay, now that, that's great because sometimes pronunciations are difficult. So I wanted to actually give you the opportunity to say who you were. No worries. Thanks for that. Thanks, darling. Now, can we start off um, talking about the Ombudsman's report? And can you just give us a background about what's been going on? Because this is really important stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, And sadly, but also predictably, this is the latest in a series of damning reports um, that have been done by the Ombudsman, by the um, IBAC as well. 
And all of them are really demonstrating the chronic um, and systemic failures across the prison system in Victoria. And this latest report really focuses on MRC and MAP. And I think probably would want to start off by highlighting the fact that these are both um, prisons that have uh, people on remand. And one of the things that have been really concerning for VALS is the um, increase in prison population, particularly people who have been remanded since the bail changes um, some years back, and disproportionately impacting on Aboriginal people. And this report found that um, with this increase in remand population, it means that people have been remanded to 10 different prisons, not only remand centres. So, for example, in December 2021, um, only 20% of the people who are on remand were actually being held at MRC. And the report really highlights the challenges um, that come with having high turnover in terms of people coming in and out of a prison. So the report talks about having 150 people come in and 150 people come out and the challenges around building relationships between staff and incarcerated people. And the Ombudsman really focused on um, eight incidents at these prisons and found that four of those complaints of, um, around the use of force were substantiated, but also the Ombudsman found um, concerning behaviour or poor decision-making by officers across all of those um, incidents. Goodness gracious. And I believe there was another report tabled in 2021 by IBAC. Is that correct? Yes, and that report was um, similarly really um, disturbing to see. Um, and it really was looking at corruption in, in the prison system and linked it um, again to the increase in the prison population in Victoria. And both that report and the Ombudsman's report that um, is more recent particularly look at failures around the use or not use of body-worn cameras by prison staff and how this has impacted on, um, I suppose, the, the record-keeping around these incidents um, where there are allegations or substantiated um, uh, incidents of use of force. I think, I believe I interviewed you on that matter. Yes, I think that's, that's correct. Um, and it's always disappointing... As lovely as it is to talk to you, it's always disappointing to be having um, conversations around the same sorts of issues and not really seeing much progress in this space. I agree, and thank you so much for saying that because it's so true. Now, this particular report here, so do you think that there's been much progress in terms of um, Aboriginal prisoners? No, so we've seen an increase in um, the number of Aboriginal uh, the, the rate of Aboriginal um, imprisonment rates, but also the increase in um, Aboriginal people who are remanded. And just really want to note that that's not only in men's prisons, but also particularly Aboriginal women and also Aboriginal children. Um, and what we know, particularly over the pandemic, there has, has been an excessive sort of use of isolation, protective quarantine, transfer quarantine, often amounting to effective solitary confinement. And we've seen an increase in um, mental ill health among detained Aboriginal people. Um, really, really sadly, we've seen an increase in um, self-harm among detained Aboriginal people. And this is all coming against a, a backdrop of what we're seeing in these reports, you know, report after report around um, increased use of force. 
it really is a most a most dreadful thing and in fact there really just doesn't seem to be very safe work safe culture um too much with with officers and and all these incidents that are happening with prisoners it simply isn't accountable is it no that's right and um kind of what's come out in a few reports and sort of other particular incidents is this kind of culture of, of silence and um, not sort of speaking out if you're a staff, um, if you're staff working at a prison, if you've seen the wrong thing, then not necessarily um, ensuring that there's accountability around that. So, for example, um, this latest report found that of 163 assault allegations, only 62 had been recorded by staff as use of force incidents and they're required to, to kind of record any use of force. Um, and, you know, in some cases, those incidents reports by staff were only filed after an assault allegation had been made. And so I guess that's one, one part of the, the failures around accountability. And the Ombudsman kind of talks quite a bit around um, concerns in relation to body-worn cameras and also in relation to CCTV footage. Um, and I guess just want to quickly raise some of our broader concerns around body-worn cameras sure. um, at VALS. And the reason I want to do that is I want to ensure that everyone is clear that body-worn cameras or BWCs are not a panacea because actually for us to get access to BWC footage at VALS, it's really tricky. Um, and because this, I suppose, without trying to get into um, too much legislative detail, but the Surveillance Devices Act kind of regulates access to BWC footage, how it can be accessed and how it can be used. And only until um, up until recently, so the end of 2021, we could only get that sort of BWC footage um, where it has been disclosed during criminal proceedings. We couldn't get it for civil litigation. And so now we can get it for civil litigation, but of course that's a really costly path to go down and without seeing that footage and not being able to FOI it, our lawyers are in a really kind of tricky position of not being able to make, you know, an informed decision and provide that advice to our clients around whether they should consider going down this really costly and time-consuming and, and difficult process of civil litigation. So I just think it's really important that although there could be improvements to BWCs, just kind of bringing it back to, well, how actually useful is it going to be for um, Aboriginal clients which, which VALS represents. There needs to be kind of much more reform done in this area. Absolutely, in, especially because a lot of Ab with Aboriginal people, English is their second language. I mean, that has definitely been the case, um, more so in other jurisdictions. I, you know, used to work at NAJA, the Aboriginal Legal Service in the Territory, and sometimes people didn't speak English at all, um, and sometimes it was their fourth or fifth language. Um, but I think even if you do speak English as a first language, the law and the so-called justice system is an entirely different language and kind of landscape in and of itself and can be really overwhelming and intimidating um, for people who aren't that familiar around what their rights are in that space. Absolutely. I'm wondering what would be useful at this point, perhaps, is for you to... Um, detail an incident for, for listeners just to for them to get an idea, um, you know, about some of the investigations that happened. Like, for example, here, I'm just having a look here at um, Mr. Mr. McPherson, I believe. 
Mr. Mac Person, M-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N. Uh, I don't have that one right in front of me, but that's I can, okay. But I can speak to um, one of the incidents that I think is really please do. But before you do, sorry, before you do, just to, to to let listeners know, just very briefly, this was in regards to um, a man being beaten up in 2020 by by officers at MRC. But you go ahead too, because we'll, we'll get some extra insight from what your your incident. Yeah, so I think kind of one of the really. Um, illustrative examples in in the report was in relation to, um, and it might be in relation to this person that you've just mentioned, I'm sure. sorry I don't have the name in front of me, but um, okay. a young man who had an acquired brain injury and was of the understanding that he was going to go to court and had that expectation that he would be going home and waited for a couple of hours, was then told that the court cells were full and he'd been left behind. And I think we can all use our imagination around how distressing this would be. Um, And he responded by, you know, making some verbal threats. And the response by prison officers was a physical response. Um, And I think that's a really um, important example of how prison staff are relying on force rather than having that skill set um, and to be honest, the compassion and the empathy to look at how to de-escalate the situation, understand where people are coming from, also understanding that the person who's in front of you is not only distressed but also has an ABI and having the ability to, to look holistically at the situation and see what they could do to improve the situation for everyone. Yeah, oh, I know the one you mean. It's It's the young man with the acquired brain injury who thought he was going to court that day and expected to be allowed home. And he he was left behind because the court cells were full. And then he was upset, wasn't he? And upon being taken back to his cell, he responded with verbal threats and there was a a physical confrontation with five officers. That's correct, yes. So that that, that complaint wasn't even substantiated properly, was it? I mean, it wasn't substantiated, for example, that the force was excessive. Is that right? That That is kind of what the conclusion was in that instance. Um, it's hard, like, being, being an outsider, but at, at sort of first blush, that seems to be a somewhat surprising um, outcome. But, again, not having all of the sort of information that, that others might have had. Um, but what the ombudsman did say was that there's they had little doubt that that situation could have been handled better and it could have been avoided. Um, And I guess any instance where the opportunity to de-escalate is not taken um, really raises questions around the use of force, particularly when we're looking at in the context of it being five prison officers and one person and the enormous power imbalance we're talking about here, um, even without just looking at the numbers involved, one person and then five people. Um, when when you're in prison, your entire life is regulated and controlled by the staff and by the Department of Justice. Absolutely. And it's it's really appalling, isn't it, what what's going on here? And it appears, you know, even by reading the report, that... A lot of the the complaints just simply weren't weren't carried out properly. 
Yeah, and look, this is not the first time these sorts of issues have been ventilated. Um, and what we're seeing is no progress. Um, so that's really um, just a disappointing space to be in. Um, there were, you know, concerns around even the existing procedures not being properly followed, like the incident reporting um, that we spoke about, the fact that other staff aren't, you know, who witness things aren't then kind of coming forward, the fact that, um, you know, BWCs aren't necessarily turned on, that things are happening where there's not CCTV um, coverage. These are kind of all the issues that are coming up. But I think ultimately it needs to come down to strengthened oversight and accountability mechanisms across the prison system. Um, and there's just a need for a complete shift in culture. Um, and that's a harder thing to do, um, but it's absolutely essential. And it needs to come from the very top, but it needs to kind of permeate down, you know, through management and to frontline staff um, around what expectations are. Um, and really coming back to the fact that the people who are incarcerated are ostensibly in the care of the state. Um, but unfortunately, incarcerated people are often, you know, their, their rights aren't front oh. and centre. I mean, because really we need to clarify too that these aren't actually... It's not the magistrate's court. These are, um, are places or... Um, if you like, where where the complaints are happening within internally, isn't it? Yeah. So there's um, issues, I suppose, around having um, internal complaints. Um, we definitely need to have across, you know, several things um, in Victoria's prisons and police as well, having um, strengthened um, external accountability mechanisms. But a lot of these mechanisms that are in place are reactive, and I think we really need to move and. Um, have more focus on the prevention space uh -huh. because it's one thing to have, I suppose, quote unquote, justice done after the fact and maybe compensation or whatever might flow from that, an apology, but really the harm has been done and we want to avoid the harm to begin with. And so what Victoria is really missing is setting up those sort of unannounced detention visits um, under the optional protocol to the Convention of Torture because we want to prevent ill treatment before it happens. And that could be one mechanism by which to start shifting that culture and being a bit more proactive in this space rather than waiting for yet another report looking on what's happened over the last couple of years. And nothing being done. I mean, they, they, I just can't believe a lot of it. It's so disturbing, honestly, looking at all these incidents of choking, of being beaten. Can you describe some of the... Can talk about, um, finally, some of the recommendations that came out of the Ombudsman's report. Sure, and as I've kind of um, mentioned sure. before, like some of the recommendations were really focused on um, body-worn cameras, um, which is, is is not an accountability accountability mechanism in and of itself. I suppose it's a tool for accountability. Um, what would have really liked to have seen um, more of a focus on is um, implementation of the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture and really would have liked to have seen um, more of a focus around the absolutely necessary bail reform because the more people are funnelled into prisons, um, the more the system struggles and the higher the risk of, of torture and ill treatment um, in the prison system. And so 
if we're talking about prevention, we need to go back to, to that need for, for bail reform. Um, and so that I think that and, and the, the issue around BWCs are some of the, the missed opportunities um, in the recommendations of the Ombudsman report. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'm just about done. There, do you have any final comments that you wanted to make? Um, would you mind terribly if I um, kind of promote our Victoria's um, bail laws petition? Of course um, not. Uh, go ahead. Great. So um, we've started a petition. Um, we know that there's uh, an election right around the corner and we started a petition to um, call on people in Victoria to sign on to fix Victoria's bail laws um, and really kind of move towards implementation of recommendations around that from, from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. So at the moment, we have 2,152 people who have signed on. Um, and so please, I encourage everyone to go on our website and, and sign that petition and share with their friends and family and colleagues because if the government or you know MPs across the political spectrum understand that this is an issue that their constituents care about, then we're more likely to see some change in this space. Yes, indeed. In fact, um, I interviewed Narita um, from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service last week, the CEO, yes. and we spoke yes, about no, that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think there's a panel discussion happening, isn't there? We have... Um, so this Wednesday we have... Um, we're launching jointly vows with Amnesty International uh, Victorian Raise the Age campaign. So there's a national one, but we're doing um, kind of a more localised one as well. So that's perhaps what, um, yes. what she was alluding to. That's this Wednesday afternoon. Um, so again, encourage people to come along to that because although it's not the adult prison system, if we raise the age in Victoria and nationally, of course, we'll see fewer um, children in youth prisons, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. Absolutely. And in fact, that's at sort of 6pm to 9pm, isn't it, on Wednesday? That's um, right. At the library, library at the Dock, 107 Victoria Harbour, prominent Docklands. And there'll be quite a few people. That's, that's Wednesday, the 10th of August. And there's quite a few people on that panel. You know, we've, we've got Julia Breeny, we're principal managing lawyer um, of Balit. Oh, that's Aboriginal land, I think. Negulu. Nigulu and Mario Santos, Chair of the Amnesty International Australia Board. And, of course, um, Narita Waite from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. I think it's great that you and I have taken the liberty to, you know, to, to discuss this on air, isn't it? Because that's a really pertinent issue. Absolutely. And I feel like you do a better job of um, promoting all of Val's... Uh different activities better than me. So, yeah, really appreciate that because um, you've given us a platform to discuss this, you know, these issues with the broader Victorian community. Um, and it's always, I think, important for us all to connect and have those discussions together. Indeed, because the fact is that raising... This is the campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility, which is the lead-up to the Victorian election, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. And we need to make sure or ensure that our children, particularly Aboriginal children, are not going to adult prisons. Yes. It's not in youth prisons. Um, and we've kind of... Val's position is um, raising the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14. Um, so 
if Victoria wants to be more ambitious than that, we would absolutely support that. But we've also, um, our position is having um, no child, like having the age of um, at which children could be detained at least 16. Um, so having that kind of two-tiered system. But I think, yeah, the important thing to always remember that these ages are at least we want to see a move towards um, empty youth prisons. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming onto the program. Thank you so much. It's always um, wonderful to discuss these issues, even if they are they are heavy issues. Um, and maybe one day we won't have to have these discussions anymore because the issues will no longer exist. I hope that day comes. It can't come sooner. Thanks so much and take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. VCR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. back with the Doing Time show and I wanted to thank our guests for coming onto the show today. Thank you to David Glantz from the Refugee Action Collective and also to Andrea from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service for speaking about the Ombudsman's report and also the broken bail laws. Do try and rock up to some of these events that were discussed today and we're going to be going out now pretty soon with our theme song Black Fella, White Fella by the Rumpy Band and stay safe everybody um, and tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show and it's um, Climate Action up next. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. I'm
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.